When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest, a raunchy joyride edition. Every Gabfest is a raunchy joyride, this one especially. It's Wednesday, July 12th, 2023. On today's show, Joyride is a raunch comedy and so much more. It stars Ashley Park as a lawyer trying to land a deal. But to do so, she must find her birth mother in her native China. It's the feature debut of Adele Lim. And then the reality genre, well, it remains unkillable once again. With claim to fame, we're in season two now. It features a group of contestants, each of whom is related to a very famous person. Others must guess who or go home. It's on Hulu. And finally, storytelling is everywhere. Has it become, though, a kind of moral and aesthetic crutch? We discuss a New Yorker essay by Parol Sagel. Joining me today is Slate's own Dan Coyce, writer, editor, podcaster, host of The Martin Chronicles about Martin Amos and author of the novel Vintage Contemporaries. Dan, welcome back to the show. So glad to be here. Yeah, it's awesome to have you. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate, author of the extraordinary book on Buster Keaton. Hey! Hey, how come my book got a mention? Just because I, I have to twin with Dan on I, our Dan book? Dan just has such a long, like, show-off-y, like, ostentatious, <laughs> like... You gotta dig up some cred for yeah, me. Yeah, Calvinist it's conscience on your sleeve you resume. You even mention two of his books. Three uh, of his books. Every time I host, I send you guys a longer resume and insist you... <laughs> Go down it point by point. That's so true. I just didn't want you coming up light, you know. But um, anyway, Dan, it's great to see you. Hello. It's lovely to be in studio. Shall we make a show? Let's do so. All right. Well, Ashley Park is Audrey, a Chinese child adopted by white Americans. She's grown up to be an ambitious striver. Her best friend, meanwhile, stretching back to childhood is Lolo Chen, played by Sherry Cola. She's tough, body, unboundaried, very funny, an artist and an underachiever. When Audrey must go to China to close a big deal, she brings Lolo with her as a translator and buddy, only to discover they are on a far wilder, more emotionally perilous journey than she ever bargained for. Uh, In addition to those two, it stars Stephanie Su. It's the first feature from Adele Lim. In the clip we're about to hear, the friends have just arrived in the Beijing airport, and Audrey is acclimating to life outside of the United States. I don't think I've ever been around only Asian people. I mean, we look like everyone else for once. I think we blend right in. Yeah, but people here can tell Chinese Chinese from American Chinese. What do you mean? See? Okay. Hong Kong Chinese. Bluetooth. Shanghai Chinese. Bougie. Ooh. Taiwanese. Weird but cute. Aww. What kind of Chinese are they? What the fuck is wrong with you? Are you trying to get canceled? Those are Koreans. Oh. That's howdy fun. It's a K-pop group. Yeah. They all have the same face. That's how you can tell. All right. Um, Dana, uh, let me start with you. Let's just preview it quickly as an interesting mix, right? It's a raunch comedy. It uh, stars an ensemble cast of Asian American women. It's um, aspiring to be more than a raunch com, I think, at many parts in surprising ways. What did you make of it? 
I mean, my favorite parts are when it is not aspiring to be more than a raunch con, <laughs> honestly. Uh, I appreciated the spirit in which this was made, and it's a fun romp for the first three quarters or so, I would say. I don't think that I'm quite on the critical bandwagon that this movie seems to have gotten a lot of critics on. It's at 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. Everybody's loving it. It certainly has a loosey-goosey summary vibe that's related to... It certainly shares some DNA with Crazy Rich Asians, which I think is a superior movie. But the main tradition it comes from, I think, is the feminist hangover tradition. If you look at movies like Bridesmaids, yeah. Girls Trip, right? Movies that are explicitly about, you know, pushing the very boundaries that you just finished talking about. But bringing that for the first time into this different kind of diasporic context of Asian American women, I don't think it succeeds as well as those movies do at balancing raunch and sentimentality. And that last quarter <laughs> that I didn't like as much, I think kind of goes off the rails in trying to pull the viewer's heartstrings. And I don't want to reveal too much about why. Not not to say that it didn't pull a couple of my heartstrings and there's some um, you know moments that make you get misty near the end, but that's not where the whole movie has been driving us. I don't know. I want to hear somebody come to this movie's defense because to me, even though it was made in a lovely spirit and is full of funny performances, it felt like a contrivance that was trying to occupy a certain space and communicate a set of ideas and beliefs mm -hmm. rather than it felt like the story of four distinctive characters. So not a exactly a like galvanic hole for Dana, but not a total thumbs down. Dan, what do you think? It, the movie clearly is a kind of contrivance. Like it was pitched specifically as an Asian American girls trip. The working title, as I emailed to you guys before this, while they were filming it, was The Joy Fuck Club. If only they could have gone with that title. <laughs> if only so they good. could have. What, what a world we'd live in. Um, but I would say that that isn't necessarily a strike against it. Like, what I often want from studio comedies is a perfect kind of contrivance, a good concept executed with flair and good jokes and good performances is often enough to get me all the way through studio comedy, laughing my ass off and having a great time. And a lot of this movie delivers on that front. Like the characters are not necessarily all vivid and believable, but they are often very fun and the way they bounce off each other and the situations the movie puts them in, which is maybe more important, uh, are the right ones. Like it forces the straight arrow into the right kinds of situations and it forces the sex pot who's trying to go good uh, into a situation where she becomes unbearably horny. Like it's putting them in roles that make for a bunch of funny set pieces. And I was really surprised to find myself, Dana, um, really buying into the final quarter of the movie in a way that you definitely didn't. Like I found those emotional scenes in the last quarter, particularly around the idea of Ashley Park's character's birth mother, um, very moving and surprisingly well done, I thought. And I, I also have a hunch that for people who share that life experience, particularly adoptees, that's going to be like surprisingly, um, maybe even unbearably moving. I, and so I would say that the the one place that the movie felt a little flat to me um, in the straight sort of joy ride to girls trip comparison um, is that it just didn't have a Tiffany Haddish, basically like the like I think about the experience of watching girls trip in a movie theater 
and being just literally breathless with laughter for 10 to 15 minutes at a time and to hear the whole theater, you know, exploding around me. Um, and that was because of having that particular character, the character that every kind of movie like this needs, um, someone who's super high energy, very unpredictable, like a little bit crazy. Um, I think the movie tries to fill that role with the Lolo character who is, you know, sort of a layabout and she's very sex positive and she says crazy things, but Sherry Cola, who is a great comedian plays it really low energy. And so there's, you never have that like burst of fireworks. Um, and so that was the thing I missed, you know, that stopped this from being like a sublime comedy experience, but like as a really good studio comedy with an unexpected perspective and then some unexpected emotions toward the end, I thought this was a winning experience. And maybe that was because I saw it in a theater where people were laughing around me and that made it so much more fun. Mm, it's funny. I went in as I almost always do not knowing what to expect at all, knowing the title and what time I was supposed to show up. And I think I'd seen a preview, but hadn't paid attention to it and was, um, Shocked to discover that in the first scene, I, when one of them, as a little kid, I mean, it doesn't give anything really away. One of them just stands up for the other. I thought that scene was so affecting and funny. It delivered like a lump in the throat and a quiver in the diaphragm of laughter. I was like, what the fuck? This is a, whoever wrote the screenplay is really in control of what they're doing. It was so economical and it, it, lays this marker down that the bond that these two kids shared growing up in the same white dominant community um, is powerful and is going to be the through line of the film. And I can't speak to it, obviously, as a, you know, Asian American woman, but I can speak to watching this movie as an adopted child. And I was profoundly moved by the last third you know, quarter to a third of it. I thought, in fact, it rang really true. It was, it was so unexpected. And it was such a curious mix. And I almost wonder if they evaded... I mean, they certainly go over the top. There's, with, again, without giving anything away, they kind of are forced to imitate a K-pop group at one point in order to get past the security gate. And it, they just totally go completely zany and uh, cartoony it's a cartoony cartoon and unreal yeah. only to be able to bring it back like i was really shocked dana that it it just hit me as kind of true to the experience of finding who your genetic people are I'm really, I, I mean, I feel chastened that no, the end that no, I regarded no, no. as schmaltzy is having a real effect on somebody who's, who has some sort of uh, analogy to that moment in their life. And as I said, I'm not going to reveal what that moment is, but the moment when they really full on go yeah. for just the, the, the weep fest. I completely complied <laughs> and, and teared up. <laughs> but it has more to do with the tonal control of the movie. It's not that I think the ra the raunch and the comedy has to remain the whole time. In fact, it's practically part of the formula of a studio comedy, yeah. right? That it, that you pull heartstrings in the last few scenes and kind of you know, the emotional stakes come to the fore. 
But I didn't see this movie as having the tonal control that I feel like you guys think it had. Yeah. I mean, there are even some moments where in a movie like this, right, a movie that's a road trip and, you know, as all good road trip movies do, it goes way off the rails. And without giving too much away, at one point, they lose all their luggage and their passports, right? Which, if you were traveling in China, would be a real crisis, right? And there's just a way that that sort of gets absorbed into the narrative. And for some reason, even though they have no luggage and we've already seen them, you know, walking through fields in the middle of nowhere with, with no supplies, they have different cute outfits in every scene. <laughs> and it's never explained. <laughs> and I guess with a comedy like this, you're supposed to just roll with that. But insofar as it's supposed to be a road trip movie about a road trip going wrong, wouldn't part of the narrative interest be like, how are we clothing ourselves and how are we mm-hmm. traveling without any of our stuff or identification? I don't know. There's 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 a lot of things that get left on the table in terms of just the sheer narrative logic of the story, which I guess if you're just rolling with the fun of it all is fine. But that, to me, made the credibility of what was going on sort of hard to grasp you know so that somewhere on the cutting room floor is a a lot like a 25 minute scene of them at the u.s (laughs) (laughs) concert dan um one thing i think we can confidently say is that the attempt to veer belatedly but dramatically away from white male auteurs has refreshed a lot of genres that otherwise would have gone stale long, long, long ago. The the basic fact of this movie is that it's authentic for having been exclusively authored by uh, Asian American women. And it speaks to someone's real experience in a way that I think mass audiences are going to generally be unfamiliar of, and certain audiences are going to find a genuine gift from Hollywood. I think mass audiences honestly can often do find this kind of reframing of familiar genres through new experiential lenses, like really refreshing and great. And I thought a lot after seeing this movie about the very opening beats, not only that opening scene that you mentioned, Steve, which I don't think we, I I don't mind spoiling it because it's it's in the trailer, but it's, you know, it's two Asian girls meeting on a playground, the only Asian girls, as you say, in a predominantly white city, and one of them punches a kid out for insulting her friend. But what happens even before that is that the opening music cue of this <laughs> movie is the Dave Matthews Band playing over all these signifiers of this incredibly white community, which stands in for not only the white world that these girls are coming into, but the white industry that this movie is flying yeah. into. And I found that really just a lovely moment of entry for me as an audience member, which meant something totally different than it did to other audience members. But all of us sort of everyone in the theater shared this dawning laugh of, oh, and that was sort of the feeling that the whole movie brought on, at least in the theater that I was in. Can I say something I would like to have seen a little bit more of in this movie? Because it was really, um, had a little bit more teeth than a lot of the other humor in the movie, which was some of the stuff about inter-Asian racism. And I don't want to get into too much of it without spoiling, but there's just moments, and we heard a bit of it in that airport scene, where you hear about, you know, how groups within Asia feel about other groups, or, you know, about, for example, Asian American tourists coming in. And... That was something that I had never thought about as a Westerner and found one of the edgier things in the movie that I kind of wish it had explored a bit more. There's this fascinating subplot with Stephanie Sue's character, who's an American who has come 
to um, Beijing to become a star in uh, Chinese TV. And her relationship with her co-star, who is a very particular kind of Asian Christian, um, a very devout Asian Christian, um, that particular dynamic, too, is something I haven't seen explored before. And I found that really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Uh, All right. Well, the movie is Joyride. I think we all basically like it. Um, Dan and I, far more enthusiastic. Go check it out. Let us know what you think. All right. let's, uh, Let's move on. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, before we go any further, this is typically in our show where we discuss business. Dana, what do we have this week? Just a couple things, Steve. Uh, first of all, I wanted to mention in regards to the Summer Strut episode, which is coming up in a few weeks, that we unfortunately at this point have to cap the submissions, the listener submissions of songs for the Spotify playlist for Summer Strut, because thank you very much. It's gotten so long that we would not even have time to listen to it if we didn't sleep between now and the taping of that episode. So if you have sent in song suggestions for Summer Strut since July 1st, which I believe was our our cutoff date, we're going to have to save them until next year. Please keep them because we'll have Summer Strut again next year. But if the list keeps growing and growing, we will not be strutting, but crawling into the studio to tape that episode. The other item of business this week is to talk about our Slate Plus segment. We're going to talk this week about pickleball, the sport that is apparently sweeping the nation in the past couple years. This came up because Dan Coyce is here co-hosting the show this week, and he is a big pickleball fan, as is Steve. They both play it regularly. So we're going to talk about that game, its growing popularity, and some of the controversies coming up uh, around the pickleball trend. You'll hear that discussion in today's Slate Plus segment if you're a member. And if you're not a member, you can always sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. In exchange for Slate Plus membership, you will get ad-free podcasts. You'll get bonus segments like the one I just described, which many other shows boast as well. And, of course, you will get unlimited access to all the writing on Slate. Best of all, you'll be supporting the magazine, our work, and the work of our wonderful colleagues. These memberships matter a lot to keep Slate going, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, on with the show. Ah, reality. You don't exist in real life really much anymore, so why not on TV? Reality TV, just unkillable genre. Claim to fame is now in its second season. We're doing it because there's a lot of buzz about it on social media, so we decided to check it out. It's a competition show whose 12 contestants are each related to a different famous person, and the others must guess who that famous person is. They're all living together in a you know, spectacular Hollywood Hills mansion. They're competing for a $100,000 
prize, but also maybe for their own tiny slice of the limelight. It's co-hosted in a stroke of, it has to be said, I think, casting genius by Franklin <laughs> and Kevin Jonas, i.e. a famous brother of an unfamous brother or vice versa. In the clip we're about to hear, it's uh, episode one of season two. The contestants kick things off by playing a game of two truths and a lie. They're basically giving the other contestants two legit hints about whose celebrity relative they are, plus one red herring. Of course, no one knows which one's which. Let's listen. I'm Carly. My celebrity relative is my uncle. Uh, He is best known for being a musician. And the greatest award he ever got was an Oscar. Wow. All right. All right. Uncle Oscars. I mean, that's cool. So my celebrity relative is one of the biggest actors in Hollywood. He's had a very long career ever since the 80s. My celebrity relative is pretty, pretty big. So I'm going to have to make sure they don't guess me first. (laughs) Okay, Dan, let me start with you. I mean... I think twice now I've used the adjective unkillable to describe reality TV. Part of me is just in, incredulous that we're going back to this well. Um, and there it is, right? Like the janky cliffhangers and music cues and sort of game show reality competition format, which brings out the worst in human beings. And by the end of episode one, I'm like, I have to watch it till the very end. Like, what, what is it about this genre that well does it get its hooks into you did this one do you watch it otherwise if you're not talking about it on a podcast uh what'd you make of it this particular kind of reality show is about the only kind of reality show that i really love which is the the reality competition uh that has no real world stakes but creates a kind of insular world that is unbelievably compelling to watch mm. um i'd compare this show to the traitors uh a terrific show that has had editions in countries all over the world, but whose American edition premiered last fall, um, hosted by Alan Cumming uh, of a bunch of people in a Scottish castle trying to, uh, you know, maneuver and figure out who are the, the faithful and who are the traitors. And that show and this show share for viewers one particular aspect that I think is the thing that makes them most like catnip to me and maybe to you too which is that it provides scene after scene of people believing themselves to be geniuses, mm. expert game players, <laughs> Machiavellian masters of the universe, and being every time comically, hilariously wrong. And there's something so satisfying to me about watching a bunch of doofuses in a house get it wrong over and over and over again uh, that to me that that overcomes even what I think a lot of people get out of these shows, which is finding the occasional real master of the game who actually does play all their cards right and plays all the other uh, personalities in the house against each other perfectly. That's fine. But what I love you know, is watching someone, you know, look at whoever and be like, I am absolutely positive that they are related to Dwayne Wade. <laughs> and like based on nothing, based on no evidence whatsoever, and then have that exact person go up, miss 25 jump shots and um, tear ligaments in his ankle attempting to dunk. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Um, Dana, 
it sometimes occurs to me that like reality TV improbably has some bizarre analogous relationship to empirical sciences, right? Like you create these conditions that exist nowhere else in the universe, right? And you force multiple personalities around a dozen to interact with one another with all of these like completely artificially controlled variables and inputs going into it. And lo and behold, like universal human nature, archetypal human nature rises to the surface every freaking time. I think that for me is what I'm blown away by. Like there's the narcissist, there's the doofus, there's the lovable, there's the this, there's the life's doormat or whatever. And it's just this Un- unreal process of watching the truth emerge from the most b- bullshit circumstances. Well, first of all, the science analogy that you just made, what occurred to me while you were drawing that analogy is, isn't the science experiment always skewed by the fact that it's a self-selecting group of people that want to be on a reality show? No doubt. I mean, at the very least, Jury Duty, which is the last reality show we talked about, I wasn't as, as crazy about it as you, but I completely acknowledge its originality and uniqueness. And what it had about it that was special is that nobody in that group of that fake jury wanted to be on in, on a reality show, right? The main yeah. guy that they're tricking uh, thinks that he's just making a documentary about jury duty. The others are actors pretending to be on a jury. And so there are none of those people that are sort of, you know, the celebrity hangers-on sort, wannabes, the kind of person that's you know, wants to be on The Bachelor, wants to be on Survivor, etc. This show not only is, you know, is made up entirely of those kind of wannabes who went out on a reality audition, but... The whole theme of the show has to do mm. with celebrity adjacency, right? And so right. I guess the best, the most complimentary thing I could say about this show is that it leans into that objection, the abjection of celebrity adjacency. That is what it's about. And in a way, what these people are called on to do, all of them, uh, in that they're supposed to conceal the identity of who they're related to, is the opposite of what they've spent their life doing, right? I mean, they're on the show because they're adjacent to someone important, but they have to spend the entire time in this artificial setting uh, being covert about that relationship, the very relationship whose power got them on the show in the first place. Um, That doesn't mean I dislike all these characters. I don't think that they're all sort of screechy narcissists, but there definitely is a screechy narcissist type who is drawn to be on this kind of show. And without spoiling who it is, an example I'll give is that in these first two episodes of this season, the woman who's ejected from the show and has a complete meltdown about it, that felt utterly artificial with the very character she had created, right? I mean, Mm. this show has a pretty warm and friendly vibe. It's not too much about character assassination and I didn't come here to make friends. Mm -hmm. There's some collaboration and there's a generally somewhat sweet-spirited feel to the show. Uh, But there was just this complete swerve when she gets kicked off and has this bratty temper tantrum about it and everybody, you know, cut to, you know, people rolling their eyes and, you know, gasping in shock that she's falling apart. Isn't she just blatantly performing that for the show i mean i guess that's why i have trouble getting into these dramas where it's just sort of of course you're having a fit you're on camera and you signed up to have a fit Mm. so what are the emotional stakes for me oh i read that very differently i didn't think she was i thought the fact the mask had fallen away and um and we were seeing something of what the stakes of winning or at least persisting beyond episode one were for her. Um, but that exposes the ugliness of the whole show, I, I, that right? Is, no, I don't disagree. Yeah. Absolutely, right? I don't disagree with that. Um, you know, it just, 
I guess the point I was belaboring was that the human personality is just the inexorable thing about us, and it rises to the surface no matter how artificial or bizarre the circumstances you put people in. As soon as they begin relating to one another, they relate to one another as themselves, you know, um, for better and for worse. And so for me, that's just, that is the spectacle of life, and occasionally you get it on TV. I do think that it is because it is a familiar format with beats and rhythms and and you know on and on that are overly familiar and sort of viewer jogging you... <laughs> zoom in on a glass of champagne <laughs> drone shot of <Yeah>. mansion <laughs> you're too good um uh it, you need a secret ingredient and dan i'm in my theory about this show i'm curious to hear both of you maybe speak to it a little bit the secret ingredient in this show is pathos i Knowing a famous person is hard enough. Um, seeing them go through that transition can be very painful because, in some respects, you lose the person you've lo- you love once they make you know unbelievable amounts of money or become unbelievably famous or lauded, um, and you gain something else in a way that has a degree of pathos to it, that pathos to it, because you have proximity to all of you know. Uh, their glamour you sh- you know you get a little bit of their shine reflected off onto you it's as dana says beautifully it's this sort of central fact of their own lives that they probably have advertised in their own ways or hidden uh, in some ways there's just a kind of weird family romance sadness at the heart of this show i mean maybe i'm projecting into it a little bit but i just i don't know I- Being the obscure relative of an incredibly famous person seems like a kind of perfect modern condition uh, in American society. Exactly. Like I sort of can't believe DeLillo hasn't written about it already, you know? And, and so, yes, I also see that pathos and I also find it unbelievably compelling. And, and it seems to me that, that uh, as we learn more about people's motivations for, for being on this show, that to me becomes a kind of feature, not a bug. Like the fact that they're the kinds of people who want to be on a reality show for their own weird particular reasons, my hunch is that those reasons are going to be weirdly compelling in ways that are unlike, uh, you know, other situations, other reality show situations. I keep thinking about this conversation in the second episode when one of the contestants reveals, you know, they're talking about, well, have you ever, you know, done any of like the luxe glamorous stuff because of your famous relative, you know, because they're all stuck together in a house and they're, they need stuff to talk about. They have no and phones says, or access to the internet. So like, right. Get supposedly though, apparently that gets broken all the time. Um, but one of the contestants is like, Oh yeah. When I was little, um, my celebrity relative was friends with Michael Jackson. And so they, we went to Michael Jackson's house and, my response to that, of course, was, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> everyone on the show, everyone was like, oh, that's really cool. Oh, what was it like? Oh, was he really nice? Oh, yeah, he was great. And this, like, living adjacent to Bizarro World, I think, might be just as damaging as living in Bizarro World itself. Like, every once in a while, touching Bizarro yeah. World, um, yet not having any ownership over it and knowing that that is what defines you in the eyes of almost everyone, you know, uh, that has got to be incredibly like self annihilating and a show that, you know, explore that even in this like semi perverted way, I find really compelling. 
But does it explore it, though? I mean, I as a viewer had that same feeling like, wow, this person is boasting about having visited Neverland as a child and everybody's nodding along and there's not any acknowledgement of the incredible baggage that that story carries. I guess the show itself, Claim to Fame, is just relying on us, the viewer, to have that internal moment. But certainly the show did not in any way pursue that that was disturbing, nor do we learn anything about these people's lives off screen, at least so far. We don't know what their jobs are. You know, we don't know how uh, how dependent they are on the largesse of that relative. So I kind of felt like there's there's a sordid world being hidden by this show that um, that it's relying for that on that unseen sordid world for the thrills it's giving us, but it's not really acknowledging or exploring it in any way. So, even though I don't find this show, as I said, mean spirited, and I kind of like the doofy Jonas Brothers hosting, and some of the characters are quite likable, it makes me feel bad to watch this show. And ultimately, I keep imagining. The celebrity relatives, right? Like the uncle of that woman who got kicked off and then turned into a complete monster about it. What if he is, you know, turning on a reality show that he knows his relative is on? It's going to be a bad family reunion at that family. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Exactly. Contrast that to the, the famous person who in the second episode, in retrospect, totally expectedly shows up on video to congratulate their relative because of course this person an incredible fame whore was like oh a reality show sure i'll Mm. i'll do video for that yeah i I kind of feel like whenever we talk about this kind of reality competition reality of people in some kind of fishbowl i have the same response to it which is just i don't understand or want to have the emotion that this is created to to uh, the Kardashians are, I guess, the ultimate example of this, and we've talked about them on, on this show before, where I just sort of think, yes, I understand that there's some sort of bad schadenfreude feeling that this is trying to mine from me, but I, I don't want to have that feeling, and so I'm not going to watch the show. And I don't really understand, I feel like this sounds really goody-two-shoes to say or something, but I don't understand the appeal of that feeling to so mm. many people. Yeah, I would say that I have a range of emotions, one of which is schadenfreude, and that one makes me uncomfortable with both myself and the material. But there are enough other ones here that I kind of liked it. It's Claim to Fame 2. It's on Hulu. Um, very interested to know what our listeners make of it and uh, of, of the genre. Okay, let's move on. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So... First, it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. 
This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Do we dare define it? So asks Parol Sagal in The New Yorker in her essay, The Tyranny of the Tale. She goes on to say, storytelling as presently promiscuously deployed comprises fiction, but also nonfiction. It's the realm of playful fantasy, but also the very mortar of identity and community. It traps and liberates, it defines and obscures. Um, Dan, let me start with you. I mean, the title of this piece gives away its point of view that storytelling, while presuming um, to have been a liberating mode that people learn to narrate, they gain a measure of control, autonomy, and identity, um, has become so pervasive as to become almost tyrannical and conformist at some level. It's, uh, I mean, it's not a totally unexpected argument, right? Storytelling is now this kind of universal metaphor for any form of narration or self-narration, so much so it's being deployed cynically, uh, by large corporations, and it's become a kind of ersatz version of what maybe it was intended to be in the first place. What do you make of that argument? You're right that it's not an unfamiliar argument, and she cites a couple of examples of people who have approached this argument from different ways, most particularly Peter Brooks, uh, a literary scholar who uh, recently wrote a book about watching sort of his influence in narratology and the academic Uh, and cultural study of narrative and its power become co-opted not only by corporations, but, you know, in the example that turned his stomach, by George W. Bush Mm -hmm. uh, in introducing his various cabinet members by talking about how he loves their stories or they have a great American story. But I do think it's useful to have it sort of laid out in an essay like this, particularly one that, um, that approaches it with her opening and central metaphor, um, the as she says, the hardest working woman in literature, the storyteller who constantly, whose name constantly comes up um, in all of these contexts, um, Shahrazad, and thinking through the way that stories operate in that tale, and then the way that they operate in in our sort of contemporary consciousness. Um, was valuable, particularly when it allowed her in the final third of the essay, and and I hope we get to this toward the end, to start dwelling on what are some of the ways that um, literature in particular can define human experience that don't 
revolve around narrative. And those that's the place where I found this essay really breaking new ground for me, at least as a reader. But you're right, Steve, that this is something that other, you know, other writers and other critics, um, even podcasters, our Slate's own Willa Paskin and the Dakota Ring last year, have talked about this commodification of storytelling, the way that it has become, that it's primacy to human experience and emotion is taken for granted in a way that surely isn't actually true for everyone and certainly hasn't been true for all of human history. Yeah. Dana, um, what about you? I'm really curious to know, as someone who is in her way a, you know, really masterful storyteller, right? The Keaton book, you had to find a way to tell that story. And you didn't reach for anything familiar in terms of biography as a genre, um, which is the great and original strength of your book. You know, um, as someone who's been faced with this dilemma of like how to shape a narrative so it's familiar and whatever grabby is a horrible word, but let's use it um, while also being utterly uh, specific to the life you're trying to portray. What did you make of this essay? Funnily enough, when I was writing the book and conceiving of the structure of it, I did not identify as a storyteller and felt sort of guilty about that. I mean, I don't think that a biography, that the life of a human being really can be resolved into a perfect story, right? That's what makes it interesting to tell is that it isn't fiction. It's something that actually happened with all of the contingencies of a real life. And I have always thought of myself as a different kind of writer than somebody who, like Dan, has crafted a full-length narrative fiction. I think to the extent that you can make a distinction between the two, I wrote that book and approach writing in general as a critic and not as a storyteller. In other words, I regard some material in front of me, you know, and my what my work on that material has to do with analysis, with taking it apart and looking at the parts and putting them back together, rather than coming up with an entire story from whole cloth that hangs together with a beginning, middle, end. This piece made me think of so many moments in my own life when I've felt the kind of limits of story and storytelling, even as somebody who has always been engaged with literature and movies and art. One of them, for example, is when my kid was little and used to ask me to make up stories. I really always felt a moment of panic, you know, like, I don't know how to make up stories. And she would be satisfied with whatever, you know, really pathetic. (laughs) (laughs) I could make up characters and situations that were enjoyable and fun, and then we would sort of riff on them together. So I guess that was the storytelling part of it. But yeah, Dan, you respond to that as a parent, even though you are an actual novelist, you didn't like making up stories for your kids? Oh, no, I hate it, man. There, You really feel put on the spot. Right, uh, like, but, I don't want to build narrative tension right now. I want to go right, watch my I, TV show in That's the last thing piece. I want. <laughs> but, but, you know, Parle's, uh, Parle's mention of that particular dynamic in this piece, that it's really more about that parents are the ones who stress about the actual narrative. And what kids just want is an excuse for a parent to be there talking to them. Uh, is struck me as totally true. Yeah. So I there's one um one thing I really respected about this essay is she didn't do the lazy thing um and quote the opening line of Joan Didion's The White Album we tell ourselves stories in order to live even to re- refute it or engage it. But in a way <laughs> I'm now going to do it because everyone forgets what Joan Didion is saying. That book is about the writer in real life having a nervous breakdown in the 60s and feeling as though it was in part because her nerve endings were so attached to the nervous breakdown that the society was having in general. And that book is about her inability to tell cogent stories 
as it echoes the culture's inability to tell a cogent story about itself anymore, which is why Joan Didion was not either repeating or creating a cliche. If you read the entire first paragraph of that, of that book, what's interesting to me about our current situation is I think that there's a confusion of sort of plot versus story. The real problem has been the hypertrophic growth of nonfiction. Um, and what people want is for life to be shaped like a plot, right? They want true stories to have like a beginning, a middle, and an end. They want, exactly, they don't want the contingency of life that prevents it from being a natural story. And they want plots to be true in the basest sense. They want to go see nonfiction movies like based on a true story and be like, I can't believe that life in fact did unfold like a plot. And to me, that's where the bad faith comes, but it's always come from there, right? Like there've always, always been sort of bad and good stories. So while I appreciated someone sort of lobbing this, you know, the salvo um, was necessary in some sense because of the horrible ubiquity of this. It's just that the challenge has shifted, right? That the act of heroic self-authoring through storytelling now faces a glut of attempts to tell and shape your story for you. I'm interested in this notion that you put forward of one of the problems being an attempt to wrangle the the mess of real life into the satisfying shape of plot um and certainly you know for as an example the the true crime uh resurgence the true crime revolution that we're sort of living through right now is is owes a lot of its power to the ability of those storytellers to fit messy, extremely messy, fatally messy life into um, certain kinds of understood plots. And and when they fail to do so, listeners or readers rebel um, as when, you know, people got got so upset that the ending of serial of this, you know, the second season of serial did not crack the crime when in fact, you know, as we've seen from later events, the crime cracking of the first season of serial was so much more unruly than the show mm-hmm. and its emphasis on shaping it, that story allowed itself to be. Um, and I think that's really true. At the same time, I do think a lot of what the most interesting writers out there are doing has to do with what Parle is focusing on in the sort of last third of this essay. Um, and I, you know, and I should note that Parl is a friend, and we host a podcast together. And so I, I have had a lot of direct um, interaction with her brain, and I, and so when she presents these two kinds of non-story at the end of this essay, these two kinds of human existence um, that narrative doesn't serve, that I think are totally outside of narrative. I really recognize them in a lot of the the literature and other art that means the most to me. And I just want to touch on them here because I think there's such unique and smart ways to think about this particular issue, to think about what the what are the alternatives to story. And one was what she described as um, non-being. It, for her, her example was when you're home with a baby right after the baby is born. Um, she describes it also as uncombed experience, the unstoried self. She talks a lot about Annie Arnaud, who works in this mm-hmm. mode a lot, who yeah. um, who is not 
shaping something, um, but is sort of exploring the, the unruly interior of yourself in a moment where you, you feel acutely the total lack of narrative in your life. Um, but that's a kind of being too, and it's worth exploring. And then that striking anecdote she relays from of all places, B.B. King's memoir mm. about a moment that lives inside him, a moment that lives inside you, and she, the word she uses is swarms, um, which uh, Ferrante also uses. You know, it it is a thing that repeats and lives in you over and over and over again, and forces you to reckon with it. But it's not narrative because it doesn't have an ending; it continues forever. Um, I just found those two points so valuable as a way of thinking about what are the other forms of consciousness that art can attempt to unpick. Um, and, and so I'm curious what you two thought of those and whether you see those in your life and see those as ways of being and ways of expressing. Yeah, that swerve at the end in Virginia Woolf also comes in at that yeah. same moment. B.B. King and Virginia Woolf That's and Laurie fabulous. Moore yeah. all coming to, and Annie Arnaud, all coming to describe in different ways these moments that Virginia Woolf called the cotton wool moments of life, right? Where you're sort of in between defining who you are and what you're doing and you're just simply existing in the world. I mean, ultimately, I think she's trying to say through those authors that there's something retrograde about relying only on, you know, the closure and the satisfaction and the catharsis of storytelling as the only thing that that art or fiction or, you know, culture has to bring us. Mm. And that seems like something profound to say. Yeah, very much so. All right. The essay is The Tyranny of the Tale. It's in the July 3rd uh, New Yorker by Parol Sagel. Uh, it is it is a provocative and in its way amazing essay. Check it out and let us know what you think. All right, let's move on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What uh, what do you have? Steve, when we were on our call this week uh, talking about what we should talk about and what our topics would be on the show, we discussed and rejected the idea of talking about a media firestorm that happened last week around a piece in GQ by Jason Bailey, who is a freelance film critic and, I should disclose, also a friend and colleague of mine. Jason wrote a piece for GQ about David Zaslav, who we've talked about recently on the show, the CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, who's been in the news a lot um, if, with a lot of very unflattering portraits. And Jason had some really unflattering, but I think extremely accurate things to say about Zaslav. There was subsequently a firestorm about the fact that GQ handled this piece really strangely. Apparently, and this is, you know, all just me reporting what I've read about it. It's not my original research. But Zaslav's team complained about the portrait of him in this piece. Uh, GQ then published a second version of it, which had essentially all the criticism softened and or cut out. Jason requested that his byline be taken off the piece. It was then pulled. Later, there was a, a new wrinkle where it turned out that the editor at GQ who had pulled the piece is actually in the process of producing a movie <laughs> with Warner Brothers Discovery. So that was a whole nasty mm. media scandal that was in, at least in on my Twitter feed, which is all about movies and the entertainment industry, um, was quite the thing last week. So that is not what I'm endorsing exactly, although it is interesting and concerning to read up on that whole story. But subsequent to this whole thing unfolding, David Roth, who's a writer I admire tremendously, he writes for the site Defector and uh, was, I think, one of the best critics of Trump during the Trump administration. Like, he was just an essential voice on that. There's just nobody who can sort of take apart 
internecine corruption in the way that David Roth can as funnily and as savagely. And he has written on this uh, this whole dust up with Jason Bailey, GQ and the days of David Zaslav story and spun it out into something else entirely where he brings in the writer's strike. He brings in AI. He just brings in the very depressing moment that media is in, which is coming to a head right now where, you know, the value of a human writer, a human voice speaking an opinion and publishing it is becoming, you know, this this rarefied and endangered uh, thing. Um, anyway, David Roth's piece on this whole story is extraordinary. It's called They Don't Want Us and We Don't Need Them. It's on Defector.com. And uh, it's long and dense, but very, very smart. And I recommend it highly. I'm so beyond psyched um, to read that. Thanks for pointing us to it. Um, Dan, what about you? What do you got? I am endorsing the novels of Patrick DeWitt. Uh, He is a Portland writer. His fifth novel just came out last week. It's called The Librarianist. Hmm. I find basically every single thing he writes just effortlessly, joyously entertaining. And I use his books uh, when they come out um, as like carrots for myself when I just need to get through a rough patch of work I or a rough patch of reading. I know a Patrick DeWitt novel lies somewhere in my future, and that will be what brings me joy. Um, he writes these darkly funny, very surprising genre twists. Um, maybe his most famous novel is The Sisters Brothers, which was made into a movie. It's a comedy about outlaws in the Old West. Um, but he also, right after that, wrote French Exit uh, about urbane, penniless New York socialites washing up in Paris, um, along with a talking cat. Um, Laura Miller just reviewed the new novel, The Librarianist, for Slate. She made this great point that this one, in a way, is a satire of a certain kind of, of currently popular novel, wildly popular novel, you know, about like an introvert librarian or bookshop owner who loves books and to to harken back to our discussion, who loves stories, who finds love or companionship through connecting with other introverts like him. But in this book, that doesn't work at all. Um, In fact, the hero of the librarianist goes to a nursing home to read stories to the residents to connect to them, and every single one of them find it completely boring and walk out in disgust. Um, The book continues uh, along as he tries to figure out what it is he actually needs in his life. Um, And it isn't stories or books at all which I found totally refreshing. Anyways, every single one of his books is just like candy to me. I'm curious what other people think of him because I cannot get enough of him. Anyways, treat yourself, read some Patrick DeWitt. Hmm. So my endorsement is, you know, every now and then I pluck one of those wonderful looking New York review of books, books, one of their classics off the shelf and just start it. Um, Curzio Malaparte is a, uh, Italian writer best known for the novel Caput, which is, I think, considered a, a, a modern or slash modernist masterpiece uh, about war. I haven't read Caput. I want to. So instead, I started with Diary of a Foreigner in Paris. And it's his description of after World War II, returning finally to Paris for the first time in 14 years. He stays there. I think it's for about, I haven't finished it yet, for about two years. Um, and he had this highly complex relationship as many Italians did to Mussolini and fascism, um, a far more equivocal and complex form of fascism than in Germany, not to apologize for either Malaparte or Mussolini or fascism or the Italians, believe me. But um, uh, for example, it wasn't explicitly anti-Semitic in origins at all. It evolved into that. Um, uh, Anyway, Malaparte 
ended up being perceived by some people, rightly or wrongly, there's a debate about it, as a sympathizer and a Mussolini um, flatterer. Um, he believed he was actually persecuted by Mussolini, dared to insult him to his face. But nonetheless, his return to Paris is highly equivocal because, as it should be, the uh, French left is ascendant, um, having vindicated itself, including and especially arguably the communists uh, as resistors against Vichy. Um, and there's a powerful um, and a noble anti-fascism is the dominant sentiment of uh, post-war Paris, in which Malaparte is both able and unable to reestablish his pre-war existence in the place he by far loves the best. He venerates the French, often to the direct derogation of the Italians. Um, there's, um, uh, you know, the equivocal document of a man attempting to uh, rehabilitate himself after the war, as well as these astonishing descriptions of Paris that he used to know um, in the World War One and po post-World War One era and now in the 40s. And I just want to read one super quickly. Um, he's standing at a window and he remembers having first stood at that window in 1918. I would wake up in the morning and stand at the window to search the gray sky of Paris at dawn after the bombardments. Big Bertha would begin at dawn, a sound in the pink sky like the scratch of a diamond on glass. And I'd see the sky open like a sheet of paper sliced in two with the edges of the gash exposed and a ray of deep blue appeared, the same color as the live flesh at the bottom of a scalpel wound. And he goes on and on and he says, um, a smell, he talks about just the smell of Paris in the morning. Um, and it's just description after description of, after description about this place that he achingly missed is now able to return to and he comes to realize, I think, is re is rejecting him, right? It was not just Paris itself, but his place within a Paris literary establishment that he, he venerated, that he'll never fully recover. It's an extraordinary document. I think it's possible to read it without uh, being apologetic for what Curzio Malaparte did or didn't do um, uh, during the war. Um, anyway, it's published by uh, New York Review of Books, so it looks great on your shelf, but also pluck it off and read it. It's kind of amazing. It's called Diary of a Foreigner in Paris by Curzio Malaparte, um, with an amazing introduction by Edmund White. Check it out. Dan, as always, just an amazing, amazing pleasure to converse with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, y'all. And Dana, that was really fun. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, really good one. As always, really great to do it in person. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. The introductory music to our show is by Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dan Coyce and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. 
With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, Cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.